0: To St. Martin the Fields, a special welcome to those joining us online and welcome to great sacred music. It's possible for a single conversation, even a conversation one has in one's youth, to change the face of a whole culture. Such was the conversation between Isaac Watts, age 17, and his father when Isaac complained that all the hymns were really boring. And his father said, well how about you do better? Well, he did do better. 750 hymns later, it's reasonable to call him, as we do today, the father of English hymnody. It's almost impossible to imagine what the church in this country would would have been like without the legacy of Isaac Watts. Just imagine it's so extensive. We might not even have great sacred music. It's as powerful as that. I'm going to give you a definition of a hymn. A hymn is a devotional lyric poem, simple and metrical in form, genuinely emotional, designed to be sung, its ideas so direct and so immediately apparent as to unify a congregation while singing it. I don't suppose anyone here would significantly disagree with such a definition, but you need to remember that's not what John Calvin thought. John Calvin thought we should just stick to the exact words of the Bible which is quite tricky if you think that the Bible was largely written in Hebrew and Greek. That would have made some pretty tricky hymnody for us to sing today. But that was Calvin's view, which is why in the tradition he came from, Isaac Watts found it so boring, uh, because it was like just singing verses straight out of Scripture. Luther, meanwhile, if you remember his chorales, Matthew Passion and so on, he was a very didactic hymn writer. He wanted us to learn the truths of Christian doctrine, and he was hymns for him were all about communicating that dogmatic message. So, when Isaac Watts came along, it wasn't just he created English hymnody, he pretty much created the whole notion of hymnody as it's known in the church worldwide today. So it's impossible to overestimate his significance. Well, we're going to have nothing but Isaac Watts today in his honor. It's our tradition of great sacred music to start by singing a hymn together. We'll finish with one too in a few moments time. We're going to sing, if you find on the inside of your handout sheets, if you haven't got one, there's still one or two left in the center aisle towards the back. Uh, We're gonna sing the the hymn on the left hand side, O God our help in ages past. It comes from Psalm 90. And this hymn was originally part of quite a snappy title That what's brought out in 1719. The Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament, where he translated into hymnody the entire Psalter, all 150, including some of the dodgy Psalms, which we don't say so often or sing so often uh, today. Uh, And the tune that we know so well is very much associated with Remembrance Sunday and so on, Uh, is called St. Anne. Which St. Anne? It was written actually by William Croft in 1708 while he was organist of St. Anne's Soho, just half a mile's walk from here. So it's a very local hymn. We remain seated. The voices stand and lead us as we sing, O God, our help in ages past. Isaac Watts was a nonconformist, which meant in his time, uh, 1690, when he was 16 years old, he couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge because Oxford or Cambridge was reserved for the ordination training of Church of England clergy. So he went to the dissenting academy at Stoke Newington, which was then a village east of London. And that story shows both uh, how prejudiced the Church of England was in its time. Of course, that's all gone now. And also, how shameless it's been in, despite excluding him, nonetheless using his hymns extensively. It's a Church of England often accused of having it both ways, but never more so than with, with Isaac Watts. What makes his hymns unique is his ability both to affirm central tenets of the Christian faith and to articulate how those convictions move the believer both in action and in soul. We're going to hear now how beauteous are their feet based on Isaiah chapter 52 with hints of Matthew chapter 13 and John chapter 20. This was published in the Blessedness of Gospel Times in 1709. We're now going to hear Give Us the Wings of Faith, and I'm going to say a little bit about it because it's a kind of classic Isaac Watts hymn uh, set in different ways and often used as a hymn. We'll hear a choral setting, of course, in a moment. What he does here is he takes a description of the veil that shields heaven from our earthly eyes. He turns it into a fervent prayer that we might be given the wings of faith to rise within that veil. And see the life of the saints who once dwelt as we do with sins and doubts and fears, but now are surrounded by joys and glories. He then turns from intercession to imagination and depicts himself asking the blessed ones whence cometh their victory. And the saints with one accord attribute it to Christ's sacrifice as the Lamb of God. Finally, he turns again, this time to preach and call on the singer to follow in Christ's footsteps. What's fascinating about this hymn is that Watts makes the ingredients of his parents' Puritan faith the constituents of a universal gospel. Those ingredients are tribulation, walking with Christ, zeal, and victory. We're going to hear a setting of Give Us the Wings of Faith to Rise now by the pre-war organist of Westminster Abbey, uh, Ernest Bullock, who also uh, compiled the music for the 1937 coronation of George VI. Following that, we're also going to hear um, Watts' classic account of the cross when I survey. Well, we're going to sing uh, again now, and we're going to sing Jesus Shall Reign, again a a fascinating hymn, um, because it shows how Isaac Watts doesn't fall into the traps so many other writers do, unlike some contemporary songwriters. He doesn't just focus on me and my feelings, you sometimes get the feeling in modern choruses that God's all very well, but it's really all about what's happening in my heart. He's not like that. Unlike some Victorian writers, he doesn't collapse the gospel into social improvement. Uh, In Jesus Shall Reign, he speaks of the universality of the gospel, but somehow he avoids falling into a colonial mindset, which is quite an achievement for somebody of his era. He looks forward to a day when Jesus' kingdom stretches from shore to shore until there is endless day. And prayer is continuous, and those of every tongue sing in sweet harmony, and prisoners the weary and the suffering are transported to comfort, light, and peace. It's a comprehensive vision, but it's clearly about God, not about our own aggrandizement, and it doesn't have any illusions about recasting God's kingdom in our own image. Quite an achievement. We uh, remain seated, and the voices stand and lead us as we sing Jesus Shall Reign. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this, this week, but I hope you've enjoyed yourself. If you have, there's an opportunity to make a cash donation as you leave or to swipe a card. Or if you like going home to do things privately where you can't be overlooked, you can send a text or you can go on our website and give us untold millions. Just remember that phrase, untold millions. Uh, Do join us on Sunday for our sister program, uh, Choral Classics, at 3.15, and then next Thursday we have the theme, In the Stillness, Preparing Ourselves for Advent. We're going to finish with uh, a stirring conclusion, Alas, and Did My Saviour Bleed. Uh, In this piece, obviously very much focused on Passion Tide, Isaac Watts brings together salvation, emotion, repentance, and love. He really is the complete songwriter. Thanks for joining us.